This is the Thera Podcast, hosted by Drs. Martin Wesley and David Whittinghill. Well, welcome to a new episode of the Thera Podcast. This is uh, Dr. Martin Wesley, and I'm also with our other host, uh, Dr. David Whittinghill, which is with me today. How are you, Marty? I'm doing well. Doing well. Good. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I'm excited about this episode. I got to admit, I think sometimes, you know, we're talking about something that doesn't relate to us specifically. And it's, you know, we're thinking out issues together. But this one's very personal. Right, it is. Yeah, it's it's very personal. Um, and so, yeah, in that way, I'm I'm looking forward to this. Now, in one sense, uh, yeah, I think we introduced this last time as you know we're going to talk about addiction, but this is also uh, your story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's my story or struggles with alcohol and or other drugs. Uh, it, and it's it, one of the reasons that I got into. Uh, counseling uh, in the first place. I was a elementary and secondary teacher uh, in art prior to uh, this, to getting into counseling. And um, well, you're, this is actually my... I, I was just trying uh, to help people with air conditioning. <laughs> I, I was working in air conditioning and maintenance and things like that before I got into this. I, well, and I would say... Uh, house parenting but you were literally you, you were an educator sort of before this so yeah I, I was and um and it became increasingly harder for me to hide the fact that uh i was drinking excessively so uh i you know i'd struggled with it for years and uh and then finally came to the conclusion that i was going to need to stop at some point so and that was uh that was that was a long and arduous period in my life. Yeah. Of which I'm glad to share with other people today. Well, that's good. Um, yeah, and I, I'm curious. Before we, I, I mean, I, I see two phases of this. One, I'm trying to, I'm curious about what you think uh, contributed to you having a problem here. But I'm also curious about, you know, the addiction treatment and and what you went through, what you think was successful for you, as well as, you know, uh, your ex- that that personal experience, but also educational and how mm-hmm. that has shaped your view on addiction treatment. But so what, what you know, to start that out, what, what, why do you think you, uh, you know, Kentucky country boy, um, you know, in some ways, what, what, why, why alcohol? Right. Um, great question. So, um, so I had a younger brother who died of a very strange form of leukemia when I was 12. Uh, and as a result of that loss, I developed all sorts of panic, anxiety, uh, and those kind of things, in addition to grieving. Uh, and, you know, there were no mental health counselors or none of that was available to me at that particular time in our school system. School counselors talked to me, but primarily about careers 
um, right. they'd bring me into the office or whatever uh, when I when I'd break down in class basically really uh, however throughout that period um, I was in emotional pain and my father uh, was <laughs> was treating his grief with alcohol and I just joined the team um, and started sneaking it out of the house and drinking it um, I don't know about 13 or 14 really? I started drinking then so, yeah. so, you had, and so, so you had this effect I mean it sounds like you uh, have this 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 grief this uh, you know psychological hurt that's going on but also you had the influence of seeing your dad cope in this way. So you're learning that, is that right, would you say? Right, yeah, that's exactly right. And so, yeah, so we're both, uh, the whole family's undergoing trauma. And so uh, the way that uh, we alleviated it as a family is, you know, the family who grieves together, drinks together, I guess, Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know that my sister did or my mother did, but I definitely did. And I guess the thing that separated, the thing that I noticed, and the thing that I've noticed from the literature, um, is that when people who who eventually, like there are, I'm sure there are other kids who had brothers who died or experienced similar traumas who used alcohol that never became uh, addicted to it per se. Yeah. Uh, but but I did, and that is because I, when I drank alcohol at that age, and even after I, I stopped or curtailed it. At that particular time, there was a period in my uh, late teens that, while I was freshman in college, I didn't drink at all, uh, and I quit altogether. Um, But at that, in the beginning, alcohol did something for me that it made me feel whole. That's all I can say. Yeah, it worked. Uh, It worked, and it. I felt like. Uh, a real person after that. Yeah. So I, I would go back to that, you know, uh, and drink again. But each time that I did, um, I would get to a point of like satiation with the with the alcohol, or it, it was like I had to drink so much to get to a certain place, and I had a high tolerance from the get-go so when my friends would like get drunk on two or three beers i would be like you all are just you know right weaklings you you just you can't really handle your alcohol because i could drink more uh it took more to to for me to become intoxicated yeah well if you're starting it that early too it seems like that I mean, it seems like maybe a combination. It sounds like from what I'm hearing, you partially genetic, maybe aspects that helped you with that tolerance. And, and then also you started early. So obviously you're going to build a tolerance fairly quickly if, mm-hmm. compared to your friends who are maybe just starting, if that makes sense too. Yeah. And, and they were part, they were partying, you know, they were using alcohol to have a good time where I, I was using it to cope. Yeah. 
so whether it was a football game or you know uh, any kind of parties that we went to as teenagers or uh, even as in a young person in college uh, if we went to a party or whatever I was using it to cope yeah uh, in class I was to co- cope with a professor uh, to talk to strangers so it became a, quickly became a social crutch for me yeah when, when now your dad was he you said he was drinking too was it more he drank more at this point after your brother mm-hmm. died or was it the he always drank a little bit but he was never I, I'm just curious you know yeah he always drank a little bit okay yeah but you saw it actually be yeah. more at this point yeah it became uh every night to the point of intoxication and yelling and screaming and he became uh he had um sort of a Jekyll Hyde relationship with alcohol. Now, what about grandparents, his parents? No. Okay, so prior to this, as far as you know, there was no history of alcohol, quote-unquote, alcoholism. Not that I'm aware of. Yeah. Now, um, they claim that uh, a generation back from my grandparents there was some trouble but I come from a a very German family and they didn't talk about that okay so it's unknown when you look at whether it's a genetic disease that has grabbed you that has been there Mm -hmm. dormant and 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 it was there from birth based on that transfer of genes from your parents or your father especially in this case or whether it was a psychological issue of coping and social influences and environmental influences of your parents how do you lean Mm -hmm. how do you lean in that way that is a a very difficult question to answer, but yeah. I will attempt it. So I believe that I had a, a predisposition biologically for alcohol. Uh, however, I'd, I'm not one. Just like I had, I've had cancer, right? So obviously, I have a predisposition for that, and I've had a heart attack, so I have a predisposition for heart disease. That runs through my family. Right. So, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I had to have a heart attack. It just meant that I didn't take the necessary measures to avoid that. So, if I look at it through that lens in terms of my uh my addiction to alcohol, my, uh, which were full of negative consequences, I, I would say that the genetic part of it was only a, maybe a third of the issue, and two-thirds of this was contextual in that uh, I was using alcohol. If I'd had access to counselors, or if my family had known how to cope with grief uh, in a different way, um, or if I'd had um, a community that knew how to, you know, surround the family with love and and support, uh, then I, I'm not so sure that I would have. Uh, 
uh, abused alcohol in that way. Yeah. But I, I, those things weren't available to me, and I, I sought a way to deal with my. If I was to say, um, if I had anything that was I was predisposed to, it was uh, anxiety. Really? Okay. Uh, so the mental disorder part that went along with this that I was coping with the grief and the anxiety that existential mm. grief that a kid you know my brother died out of nowhere so it could happen to me too. right 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 so uh, so you, what do you do with that well you you drink so you don't think about it right right so so that is two-thirds this environmental like you were talking about me imitating my father, um, imitating what I see other people doing, and it seemed to help. And in addition to that, it did help me cope with anxiety. But the, as you already know, that that what helps also hurts. And mm-hmm. later on, uh, you know, there's some developmental stages I missed out on because of the drinking. Right. Right. So what I I think I'm hearing you say is like there's three influences. One is maybe genetics in the sense that it predisposes. Not that it's a disease. I think what you, I think I'm hearing you say, but but it predisposes you to how it may react to your body um, and uh, and maybe lessen pain. Um, whereas in some people it may not as much. And 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 I I think you I, I like the word that you use predisposed. And, and let me throw an analogy, and I'm curious if you would agree, but I'm predisposed to, to sunburn. <laughs> I mean, I, mm-hmm. I'm very fair-skinned, and if I go out in the sun, I burn pretty easy. Uh, but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that I have to, that I cannot put sunscreen on, wear a hat, wear long sleeves, and I don't have to get right. burnt. But So I am predisposed to it, but that doesn't mean it... it it is my destiny. That's correct. And had I known, okay, let's let's just say that there was a history of uh, family issues related to alcohol, and that was openly shared with all people in my family. Then, uh, then the elders in my family would have passed that on to the children and said, "Wait a minute, maybe drinking is something you want to." you want to pass on here yeah maybe maybe this is not because you know uncle bob and his brother and so on and so forth but because that was sort of scrubbed out and not discussed yeah don't know don't know yeah if that was the yeah so so you didn't have any uh generational learning to avoid certain behaviors based on uh right how whatever so Interesting. Yeah, because, you know, one thing that frustrates me, and again, I know I don't want to get away off your story by any means, but to me, how are we going to talk about treatment unless we actually know what we're talking about? And one thing that frustrates Mm -hmm. me to no end sometimes is people will say that it's genetic and it's based on, on, you know, family history and stuff. And we're sometimes... (laughs) 
quite limiting uh, and almost prejudicial where we will categorize certain peoples of having this disease uh, and, and not others. You know, very few Jewish individuals, for example, they drink, uh, but they don't drink to intoxication, whereas other groups have done that. But I don't think it's a disease per se as much as it is a... Uh, a, a a cultural norm, many times, and mm-hmm. I and I, I I see that in Appalachia quite often, which of course we're talking about from our past, but but um, we often will almost uh, like like people are tainted goods. They they have a predisposition that they're alcoholics and addicts, and they, they they'll always be that way. And I think that really does hurt a culture as well. I would agree with you 100% because right now, as we talk, uh, the opioid crisis uh, is predominantly focused on that area of the country, West Virginia, Appalachia. Okay, so they could um, sell their drugs easier there because people ask fewer questions. Exactly. And those those folks were in socioeconomic straits and in pain and why not feel better using this particular opiate it's available people are willing to prescribe it and we have poor unemployment the coal mill or the coal uh, mines are shutting down that's the only or the, you know that was the predominant field where males could make money and um, and it dried up yeah so we have a new thing to make money from exactly. it's not coal it's just oxy exactly the drug that doesn't addict you yeah so yeah exactly yeah <laughs> yeah i heard that as well so i see what you're saying in that it's it, it even if we were to say that um any uh group of people were uh predisposed to use any particular well we actually did for a while the difference between uh, predisposition the difference between uh, prison sentences for uh, blacks versus whites right so like there were some uh, powder cocaine they were more like versus crack they were that's right. They were more likely to be addicted to crack, right? No, they were more likely to be addicted to cocaine if they could have afforded it. That's crazy yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's a, it was based on economics. Yeah. Yeah, so when we do that, we do a disservice to how we treat addictions, in my opinion. Yeah. So, um, And we, we overlook... Uh, how people change and what helps them change and we get these um, manualized treatment programs that are supposed to help everybody that walks through the door and I don't have to tell you about uh, manualized treatment and uh, copies of treatment plans that are the same for all the people who are in treatment at the same time yeah it's crazy 
crazy world we're in. So you would say, and just to move on, um, but I wanted to mm-hmm. say this found ask this foundation a question. You would say that when you were born, and and if somebody could have done an MRI on you or a PET scan or whatever, or functional MRI, <laughs> yeah. they would not have looked in your brain and said, "Oh my God, there's addiction." No. They, there's your brain no. would have look no different than anyone else's for the most part, and any changes yeah. that would have been related to drugs would have been shaped by the drug itself and not prior to. I think so. Yeah. I I think though. I agree. Some of these, they get it backwards on some of our science, but that's a whole. That's another. That's another discussion. But okay, so what happened? So here you are, really struggling. Uh, with uh, it sounds like it's becoming you're you're preoccupied with alcohol. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm so preoccupied to the point of uh, I drove a Volkswagen, and I don't know if you remember it or not, but the the windshield wiper fluid in those cars uh, was uh, wasn't controlled by the engine or anything. It was uh, it didn't have a motor, and it was you, what you did was pressurize the tank, and if you pressurized the tank, you could squirt out a windshield wiper on your on your windshield, and that's the way you took care of things. Well, I took that and piped it into the car, uh, so I could, didn't get uh, pulled over for uh, a DUI. If I did, I wouldn't have any bottles or cans in there. So I piped it in and actually uh, had a tap. Uh, where I could put uh, gin or vodka on tap inside my Volkswagen wow. and drink as much as I wanted to. So yeah, I was that's that preoccupation that they talk about in the DSM with the drug and uh, I had very much was preoccupied with the use of the drug and recovering from the drug. Yeah. So everything was planned around use of the drug relationships school job the whole nine yards so and it it began to cost me uh, relationships because nobody wanted to put up with me Uh, and I got to the point where I I couldn't afford uh, the alcohol that it took to uh, to actually satiate me so I was having to steal from people steal their liquor all that sort of stuff towards the end really? and those those are the times when um, I had moments of clarity where I could see that I had a problem uh, that was bigger than me and I needed help solving it so so, yeah. so it was like literally you're just going I don't like what I've become sort of like yeah. seeing yourself in the so mirror gotta, or something like that yeah, so if I got if I have to drink um, this much alcohol every day and recover it from it and have the the hangovers and and experience blackouts, it's this this idea of loss of control, right? So um, similar to the there's you know there's been a hundred and ten meta analyses on this kind of stuff, but uh, there's one. Uh, that was done in 2011 uh, by Susson. And basically what they found under this idea, this definition of alcohol or addiction, uh, 
addiction to any substance is that it has certain we we have an agreement on certain things and that is and one of those is the like the preoccupation i talked about uh loss of control and then negative consequences all of which i had yeah so you know most people think it's like waking up like i am not an i don't have an alcohol or drug problem because i don't use it the first thing i when i get up in the morning that that's not it 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 doesn't matter when or how much you use it's just when you use you can't predict what you're going to do right so when I drank, there are times when I could cut back and there were times when I couldn't. And the times that I couldn't, there were, I, I might drink to a blackout and meaning that um, I wouldn't know uh, where I was the next day. Yeah. If I was in, in my hometown or in another town, uh, I didn't know. I think what I'm hearing from you, too, to some degree, what you're saying is that you had some control when you might start drinking or or the environment in which you might start drinking again. But once the alcohol was on board, all bets are off. Right. You know, it's it's speaking for you a little bit. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, it was making out the alcohol or any other drug that I used with the alcohol were pretty much making decisions I was making decisions and bad decisions impulsive decisions based on that my my frontal lobe was out of the game yeah now you say you started to look at yourself going oh my god this is I need to make a change so what what where did it go from there? So, yeah. Uh, I tried a thousand different things to change. Um, the drink only beer change, the drink only wine thing, the drink every other day thing, the uh, drink alcohol. Each one of those started the, with drink, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they drink milk first, okay. so or or oil first, so it doesn't absorb uh, in your system. Um, smoke uh, marijuana. Uh, that didn't work. That caused me to have panic attacks. Oh. Um, so, yeah, I tried all those kind of things first, um, and then I tried. Uh, going to various uh, counselors and psychiatrists who who prescribed me drugs um, which you know so you're trying to get off drugs sedatives. and they're trying to give you more drugs and they try to and they put me on uh, other drugs and, I, and and to be honest with you I wasn't honest with them about the amount of alcohol I was using so yeah, yeah. Uh, you know so I, I just used whatever I could at that point. Uh, and I've continued on that way for a number of years until, you know, I kept hearing people talk behind my back and saying, you know, this guy's not, you know, he's pretty smart, but, you know, he's just screwing everything up by drinking. I don't, like, he does really dumb stuff when he, when he gets drunk. Yeah. And, David had uh, so much potential. I, <laughs> And, 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 <laughs> yeah. and this is what we get. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And this, oh, we put so many man hours into this. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. And so I, I just got disgusted with uh, living like that, that uh, I began to go to like the self-help groups and, you know, explored AA. Uh, I went to Narcotics Anonymous meetings. I went to just church groups. I went to... Um, I went to psychotherapy groups. Um, I, there's not much I didn't try to to get to stop drinking. Um, but um, the 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 time when it stuck the longest, uh, the periods when it would stick the longest with me, is when I would hang out with a group of other individuals who had the same problem I did, that were having the same cravings that I was, and we'd all hang out together uh, during the times that we would drink. Uh, and we'd hang out at these little uh, restaurants uh, after a meeting. Sometimes it was AA, sometimes it was uh, Emotions Anonymous, sometimes it was uh, Narcotics Anonymous, but it, anyway, it was a, just a group of individuals trying to make the same change as I was uh, so that they could have a better quality of life. And through that group, um, I, I, you know, they did talk about uh, in 12-step groups, a higher power. Uh, I couldn't wrap my head around that at that particular time. Um, but I used that group as uh, to keep me on track. Account- so accountability. I like, uh, right. So whenever I wanted to, to drink, I called one of them. Yeah. So uh, that eventually worked for me, and I was able to, to quit drinking after several times of after several attempts yeah. let's put it that way but I never went to a, a formalized treatment program yeah. uh, or did I have access to an alcohol uh, a counselor who had experience at recovery right right because exactly. they didn't exist I guess back when we wrote dinosaurs yeah well, they should have, but yeah, that's another story. But so, so <laughs> I, I think from what I'm hearing you say that the twelve steps per se was not your thing, but the accountability and the support of people that were going through similar things was very influential in you changing. Oh, I yes, I, twelve steps. Uh, the meetings were very influential in me getting sober. Uh, they helped me change my behaviors. Following the steps, per se, not so much. Yeah. But going to the meetings and talking to the people, yes. Yeah. And talk, it, during the meetings, what we would talk about is, how, how in the heck do I stay sober today? Right. You know, when I got these problems and somebody would say well this is how I do it and so on and so forth uh, I didn't do well in it's, it's very similar to if I when I went to church you know you, you'd read uh, chapter and verse and I, I didn't do well with that that didn't help me right with uh, 
that didn't help me change my behaviors. Uh, watching other people go through uh, life struggles and not drink, and me modeling the behaviors they imitated is more like this um, Bandura self-efficacy kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Is was which much more helpful to me. So the same way that you, in many ways, started uh, with the influence maybe of your dad and watching him cope, you're also seeing the influence of others and their practical, uh, you know, practical uh, advice and uh, steps for meaningful change in their own lives uh, had an impact on you and your change, sounds like. Yes. Yeah. Just having a goal. Yeah. Yeah. Higher goals. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think just having a goal. And I think at this time, while your higher or excuse me, your your goal at this point is just to be a day to day kind of here and now thing. Isn't this about the time you started thinking more about school or is that coming later? No, it actually was when I started thinking about school because um, to remain sober, right? Because there's the the, the, the ever-evolving <laughs> question is, yes, I am sober now. Yes, I quit drinking, but why? Why exactly. stay sober? Right. Because why because stay drugs work this way. Drugs yeah. drugs work. They they help you overcome the shit that's going on in your life. And unless you have higher goals, it's not going to be you know sustained. Right. And so it's that meaning and purpose thing. Uh, it's that existentialism issue that helped me stay. And uh, I haven't used alcohol or other recreational drugs since then. Yeah. Uh, it's kept me on the uh, track, on the straight and narrow f- for me. It's been important for me to maintain meaning and purpose in my life so that so that when I die it's you know you know Dickens pretty much put it all down when he wrote the Christmas Carol so my fear of Christmas future yeah of what people are going to say at my tombstone uh, is what kept me is what's kept me sober it's I'm I'm concerned about what I've contributed, what legacy I'll leave behind, uh-huh. what other, what I've, what I've done for others, right? And and that helped me um, feel like I was making a contribution, and that felt better than any alcohol or any drug I took. Yeah. So it sounds like, and and again, tell me if I'm wrong, but. The short-term rewards for you were the day-to-day realizing I can do this. And you were getting rewarded personally because you could be successful in that day. But the long-term, what really kept you off of drugs was that existential purpose that you found later with with schooling, with uh, being proud of yourself, uh, and relationships, your children, and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. So each day I was putting money in the bank towards tuition, towards the degree. So yeah. what, whatever odd job I could take, I took it. And um, 
It didn't matter what people thought of me. I just worked a, a, a lot of crazy, like you were talking about earlier. Like there's not too many jobs in Kentucky, uh, white collar jobs, but there are plenty of farming opportunities. Right. They work in the tobacco fields. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yep. And working in, uh, you can work as a carpenter. I painted houses, built houses, uh, taught as a substitute teacher, whatever I could do to pay for this degree. Uh, and so I finally got my degree at uh, Western Kentucky University in mental health counseling. So you got your master's degree, and that's yep. contributing not only um, toward your future, but also... Uh, again, this idea of this uh, helping the helpers, uh, excuse me, the uh, the wounded healer. You've been struggling with certain yes. things and the way to help yourself sometimes is by helping others. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. And and that's what still drives me forward today. So, yeah. So interesting. Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious. Um, so I think what I'm hearing from you is that if you were to classify, and I hate putting things in boxes per se, mm-hmm. but you know sure. when we're looking at a treatment uh, and how other people might classify this, it, it sounds like what I'm hearing from you, it was not a disease model per se, whether that's a spiritualized metaphorical disease or whether that was a physical disease model that you were, but you were really going a social learning model, learning from Mm -hmm. other people, being supported by them, and that helped cause change in your life. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And and I would throw in one other. So I can't help help but go there as that social (laughs) learning type model. (laughs) Exactly. And I throw in one other ingredient into the recipe, and that is... uh, there was a period where I would I would travel to uh, from my little town from that hometown in Bowling Green down to Nashville to sit with uh, monks, and so I learned Buddhism and I learned how to stay in the moment uh, from from those folks, and so the, even though I could not uh, I I couldn't conceptualize how this whole higher power thing would work yeah, for me. Yeah. I was able to stay in the moment and be comfortable with myself. Uh, and, and that's the way I learned to deal with the, the anxiety, which was a very new to me. And and also um, listen to that, I don't know, quiet voice within, I guess. Right, right. So not only Which, learning from others, social learning, but also addressing these psychological and maybe spiritual hurts that you had that's lessening those that pain uh, that also contributed toward the need to use. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it was kind of a, it was a mix. So no, no uh, follow the steps kind of thing. Uh, I would talk about them enough to be a part of that group, but re- I really created my own way to 
to uh, recover, I guess. A personalized treatment plan that you'd help develop. I think yeah. that's what they call it, Marty. <laughs> well, a personalized treatment plan. Well, I mean, I'm looking forward to actually a part two to this, which may be a little bit, but but what's interesting that I say that is that me and you believe in a personalized treatment plan. and, and you, Yes, we do. But, but many um, addiction treatment programs uh, have a tendency to force an individual to do what they think is the best thing. And, and so treat individual. No, there is no individual. They say step one, two, three, four, and you have to go through those. And, and that's, that's your right. only option, you know, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and that just wouldn't have that that didn't work and, and wouldn't have ever worked for me. Yeah. Well, what, that's fascinating because I know the future, of course, and like I said, maybe we'll get to that next time we uh, we get together or the next time after that because I think we have a guest next time. But but what I'm what's mm-hmm. interesting to me is that I ended up going to work at a facility as the uh, director of a treatment facility. Uh, that you actually worked in prior to me getting there. So that's just fascinating to that's me. A, it is fascinating, Marty. Yes, I worked there for uh, from 91, 92, 93, and left in 94 okay. to pursue my doctorate. Okay, and I came in, I think, 2002. I think is when I started, uh, and I was the treatment director at that point. And of course, so me and you both know uh, <laughs> a lot of the history, which we'll get into maybe next time. But, but I, I just I, I'm thinking of it because specifically I remember the first day I was there, and here I am. I'm being asked to change, make change, okay, for this facility that had uh, sort of been. St- steeped in a recovery model for its whole life and there's many ways of doing things and I was told to help mm-hmm. facilitate change and the first day I go there they're literally copying treatment plans <laughs> for everyone and everyone does the same thing yeah and, <laughs> and that's why I pursued a doctorate is because of that particular uh, program's way of of treating addiction, and I decided I would pursue my doctorate to uh, sort of help, if I could, promote the idea that there were other ways. Yeah, different paths. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, well, I got one question before we maybe shift gears uh, and talk about next sure. time. But, you know, Absolutely. I know you were also... Uh, you know, dealing with you—you you were also smoking uh, cigarettes at this time, and oh yeah, and so um, because we talked about that before. But which one was harder for you, cigarettes or alcohol? Oh, the uh, cigarettes by far have been the mo- were the most yeah. difficult to quit. But um, as you know, that's usually not addressed in a typical program. And you're just allowed to drink as much coffee and smoke as many yeah. cigarettes as possible. Yeah. I, but yeah. Yeah, it's always fascinating because 
Bill W. didn't die from uh, alcohol. Uh, he, he died of cigarette uh, lung cancer. Yeah. But anyway, that's another story. But the um, why I ask that is is just again this theoretical perspective of what uh, you were struggling with. But uh, I think uh, so. You're a, a, a non-smoker right now. That's correct. I have okay. To. Are you a alcoholic? You say you're a non-smoker, meaning you don't smoke anymore. My question is, is are you an alcoholic? No, I'm a non-drinker, Marty. Okay, non-drinker, okay. <laughs> okay, I like that. That's good. Oh, you don't drink anymore. That's good. That's good. Again, yeah. you have choices, and you make those choices. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not- and it's important. It's important. It's important to, uh, we all know that language is important and it's important how, how we use labels. Exactly. And, and when you give somebody this, uh, a diagnosis or a label of, hi, I'm David, I'm an alcoholic, uh, the idea that um, I'm a thing rather than a person. Exactly. It, is 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 counterintuitive to me um, yeah I understand that some people find comfort in that and and that's okay but um, it, it's I, a, sometimes I just it's a club membership it does card. more harm uh, yeah. I've seen it as a club membership card and I understand that you know I I'm part of AA I'm you know this has saved my life I get mm-hmm. that part of it at the same time they don't realize the way others perceive them based on that label and potentially how they perceive themselves and that's more of my concern than anything once we start saying you know uh, to a child they're a little shit uh, over and over again they start to believe it and if you've been told that and you may even say hey, i'm just a shit um oh you know mm-hmm. you start to believe that as well and while that may have that label may have some meaning to you or some kind of you know, for whatever reason, it's it does influence the way you perceive yourself and your ability to have those higher goals that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I and and that's probably it's not probably that that is the driving reason that I shy away from labeling myself at all. Yeah. Mm. Well, I look forward to a part two. <laughs> Hey, it's been fun. Yeah. Well, you know, next time I'm uh, looking forward, we're going to interview a colleague of ours, uh, Dr. Uh, Rick Balkin. He is uh, someone that has written several books, uh, mostly for the. Yes, he has. Mostly for our profession, mostly for. you know, counselors and counselor educators and so forth. But he's also he's written one lately that really I think is more for the uh, the general audience, uh, and it relates to uh, forgiveness. And the uh, what I think is very unique that he's written about is he's not looking from a I would say a Christian worldview look at forgiveness, mm-hmm. but he's actually going into his own cultural roots. Of, of Judaism and looking at the way um, forgiveness is looked at in his own culture and, and I think we're going to get a lot out of it I'm looking forward to that so. 
Yeah, I, I am too. So uh, he's written a book mostly about forgiveness. Yeah, I think it's called. <laughs> don't have it in front of me, but um, uh, on forgiveness or something along that line. So yeah, I've I've read it. I've got an audio book for it. You know, I, I think you know for him being on our podcast, we need to get a, a signed copy though. <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah. But that, you know, working with clients, that's that's a, an issue oh my gosh. that comes up a lot. Oh, yes. So I have a lot of questions for Rick about oh, that. Oh, I, I look forward to it as well. Um, I have seen, you know, we talk about our Appalachian culture uh, quite a bit. And I have seen, uh, do you know what Sin Eater is? Have you heard the term Sin no. Eater? Um, Sin Eater is coming from the old country, um, but it was also being used in in uh, Appalachia uh, for quite some time. I don't think anyone's doing it today. But anyways, that whole um, practice where an individual in a community, in a village, would come to a person that was struggling and dying, actually, and they would come into the place and they would eat these cakes that was uh, in symbolism where the the sins of that individual would go on these corpse cakes that would be placed on the dead body or the person that's dying and this individual would come and eat those cakes and he was eating the sins of the individual I often, I know that, you know again, that was just, you know and they, and they were called the sin eater and they were sort of an outcast in the, in the, in the uh, village in many ways but they served a huge purpose uh, where, you know, hmm. taking the the uh, you know the sins of these individuals and I don't know there's a part of me as a counselors that I think we have to eat this you know these sins we have to eat these uh, anxieties this depression of other individuals and I and I see the life uh, anyways I want us to write an article on this one day David on on you know the counselor is a sin eater and uh, I think it's fascinating. Anyways, I it's, think we might get a lot from what he's right, uh, saying about that. Um, so that's that's fascinating. Yeah, I look forward to it. Yeah. All right. Until next time, I guess. So. Yeah. Enjoyed it. All right. Talk to you later. Bye.